Welcome to the Culture Road Podcast, Episode 3. Through our work with clients globally, my agency, Dieta Jones & Associates, promotes the idea of next-generation leadership, pulling diverse perspectives to the forefront as it is the way of the future. Our brainchild, the Culture Road Podcast, is a brave space that celebrates diversity of thought where all perspectives are welcomed. The vision for this podcast is to never shy away from hot or controversial topics, but rather to embrace them in an effort to remain neutral, to protect those in power, or to be viewed as politically correct. Companies often fail to address the elephant in the room. However, not giving voice to defining issues, it doesn't make them disappear. Those that feel overlooked and oppressed they can become isolated, breeding tension in the workplace that becomes a barrier to cultivating a synergistic workplace culture. Today, we're putting it all on the line, giving language to a topic that has a nation divided, critical race theory. Joining me in conversation is Dr. Jerome Offer Jr., the Associate University Librarian for Anti-Racism at Harvard Library, and also, pleasantly, a consultant for Dieta Jones & Associates. Jerome is also the President and CEO of the Mr. HBCU King's Leadership Conference and Competition, which provides leadership training, coaching, mentorship, and career development to young men at historically black colleges and universities. And also, Jerome recently celebrated 30 years as a very active member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. In addition to all of those other ridiculously interesting professional and community layers of involvement that you have, Jerome, you and I have been friends for 30 years. We have, we went to college together. Our careers have followed each other. There's been times when you hired me or I hired you. We have... Um, supported each other and been kind of trusted confidants for decades. I was even in your wedding. It's it's been an amazing journey, and I am so incredibly happy to have you here. Welcome. Awesome. I'm so excited to be here with you and to be in conversation with you, as well as for us to be able to shed some light on this topic of critical race theory for people. Yes, good. We need to, because there clearly is a lot of confusion about it. (laughs) A lot of confusion. So when the team and I began the discussion around this topic, you immediately came to mind. And you, I know, are someone who can help us create a rich dialogue, not only from your professional background, but also from your personal experiences. The the goal today is for us to shed light on how this 40-year-old academic concept of critical race theory has impacted us and society at large in very practical and even personal ways. So what I'd love to do now, Jerome, is just shift the conversation into kind of really understanding a little bit more about critical race theory. But you know what would be a good place to start? A definition. doesn't have to be complicated. doesn't have to be cited. But just can you define how you think about critical race theory? Sure. So from my perspective, critical race theory is literally a conceptual framework that academics talked about. And the key piece that I think most people miss about the definition of critical race theory is intersectionality. The theory and the conceptual framework originally was talking about the intersection of race and law and how um, our systems or the systems of oppression, the systems of racism, the systems of injustice and intersectionality of race predicts two different outcomes. And it's also something that documents history and how we as a society have actually played out oppressive behavior, oppressive work or language or policies and intersected with races specifically around um, men and people of color. I love it. So that's the piece that I never, ever, ever hear anybody talking about. I never hear anybody talking about the fact that this is about the law and that was part of the origins of critical race theory is people who were not just studying race and systemic 
interventions, but also people who were studying law Absolutely. and how law is disproportionately negatively impacting certain populations. Yes. And thus this whole body of academic literature and knowledge has come to play. But now it seems like, you know, in today's society, people are just kind of throwing the language around and misusing it in ways that are incredibly um, kind of uninformed, but mm -hmm. also really dangerous. It's like yes. people are weaponizing this language. Yes. Well, I, I think part of the weaponization is a part of oppression and the oppressive system because critical race theory also talks about history. And as far as oppression is concerned and the oppressor's history, being able to have a conversation about critical race theory means that people have to reconcile our history and our past as a country, as a society, as well as how we have created laws intentionally to be very different to marginalize people to keep voices quiet, to minimize people's voice, their life, their, their activities, but really to really continue to have an oppressive system in place. Okay, so the word reconciliation is so big and it makes me, mm -hmm. you know, immediately my brain jumps to how do we reconcile history? But I'm gonna start off with just a recent conversation that I had and it's, it's a small little conversation. Mm -hmm. It'll be ridiculously familiar to you. Um, because so many people have these conversations Absolutely. all the time. But I'm at my son's school for um, kind of an open house orientation and preparation for high school, You're kind of learning about all the different clubs, whatever, whatever. So there's a lot of kids there. There's a lot of parents. And at some point, I meet a parent, and we go into a just a random conversation about random things, right? Just everything from neighborhoods to schools to, you know, all of a sudden, critical race theory. Mm -hmm. At one point, she mentioned something along the lines of, isn't it horrible that they're trying to make our kids pay for something that they had nothing to do with, something that came from the past? Hmm. I knew that she was immediately talking about critical race theory, but I feel like that's the real common understanding of critical race theory right now, is that it's about this idea of reconciliation is really about trying to make people in present day feel guilty about and even pay consequences associated right. with something that happened long before them. Help me, help me just sure. think about this. Yeah, so it's interesting that those conversations are happening, especially um, across the nation around having people feel comfortable or uncomfortable at teaching. The truth is, if I could be as bluntly and as direct as possible, um, the history that we're discussing is not the history that BIPOC folks have created. This is history that dominant culture has played and has implemented. And now the issues of shame or other pieces that they have, they don't want us to have conversations about it. But as a black man and as a black boy growing up in the city of Chicago in the 80s doing the, the crack epidemic, I know these conversations were had and they're still had. I dread the day that I have to have this conversation with my great nephew about what it means to be a black male and dealing with uh, law enforcement dealing with society, dealing with personalities, dealing with aggressiveness. Um, so uncomfortable conversations, as far as I'm concerned, um, black folk have been having yeah. this conversation for years. Yeah. And so now that majority culture feels that the conversation is uncomfortable, the question is, and the way to look at it from a non-monocultural perspective, is why are you uncomfortable? What's yeah. making you uncomfortable about this history? Yeah. And why is it such a problem that you have to be uncomfortable. Hell, I've been uncomfortable for a long, long Absolutely. time. You know, it's like, Absolutely. really? We can't have a little uncomfortableness to spread right. around. I'm exactly. not trying to make the whole world miserable, right. but why I gotta be the only one uncomfortable? Well, and not only that, you're uncomfortable, but you're uncomfortable about your history, not about my history. You're uncomfortable <laughs> about what your ancestors did, what your forefathers and foremothers did, which has now benefited you in privilege, in wealth, in land ownership, and even the status in our society. Well, as part of the like uncomfortable feeling associated with not just maybe shame or guilt, that's a potential, mm -hmm. but it also may be, well, if we actually acknowledge that things are built on a false narrative and they were built in a way that wasn't actually equitable, I might actually shift power mm -hmm. dynamics. I may lose some of the privileges that I've had and as much as I might intellectually say that I want equity, when it's my privileges that, right. I'm, that I'm willingly giving over, then mm -hmm. it feels like a loss. 
It doesn't yeah. feel equitable when it feels like when I've had so much of it. Yes. So you think about everything's about winning and losing. Everybody has to be a winner or a loser. And that's part of our U.S. centric society, which I understand. But we have been dealing with that for decades, for right. centuries. When you think about um, winning and losing, you think about the Tulsa race riots and the Greenwoods and all the places where we've had black business and black commerce yeah. and the issue of us continuously seeing those communities destroyed because someone of dominant culture felt like they was losing. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the book, The Conversation that I'm reading, uh, it references Mississippi burning, where there was a situation where a black farmer and who had uh, leased some land, had saved enough money, bought a mule. And so he was using the mule to help farm the land. Well, the white farmers um, joked with his neighbor farmers so much about it that, you know, the black guy is progressing more. He has a mule. He's able to to take care of the land faster, to harvest the land faster. And so the jealousy of the white male, eventually they poisoned the mule and killed it. And what he said in the movie to his son in the car, and excuse my language, he says, if you can't be better than a nigger, what can you be? Yeah. And so the concept that even in my brownness, regardless of my background, my education, my wealth, that some people still believe yeah. that I am less than yeah. and to white Americans who may not have succeeded to the same level I am, I am even more of a threat because I am perceived to be better than them and that's impossible yeah. for folks to understand. Yeah. So that is some of the uncomfortableness historically that people have to reconcile with yeah. that is still alive today. And they got to tell the truth about it. Absolutely. You know, there's so many people who are like, no, I'm not uncomfortable, or no, it's not really race, it's class, or no, it's this, or it's political divide. And, you know, at some point, people, and I feel like that's the real reconciliation, you know, that's happening. It's kind of an internal struggle that so many people who have power or privilege or who have untruths that have been, you know, acculturated into them have to really be willing to kind of examine honestly Absolutely. and openly. It's interesting because... There are other countries that have done this, you know, like in, in Germany. They're like, let me tell you, we screwed up. Let's right. talk about it. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this reconciliation, I'm not saying it's perfect, right. but I'm saying that there's a, there's a it, it's the opposite approach and in saying instead of pretending like it never happened, like we're just going to pretend like we're the three blind monkeys or can't see, can't hear, can't mm -hmm. anything. And mm -hmm. instead, what we're going to do is kind of look at it. So that, we, so that we know and we don't repeat it. And it's really interesting that we are taking such an incredibly opposite approach in the Absolutely. United States. Well, and the other thing, you know, the other topic that a lot of people shy away from is reparations. And so all of this connects to all of the oppressive uh, history. But even when you think about reparations, the, one of the only communities that has not received reparations for harm is the African-American community. We know that we had reparations for the Holocaust. Canada is now looking at reparations for its treatment of indigenous youth over the years when they were um, taking uh, indigenous children yeah. from families and uh, giving them up for adoption to white families in the U.S. And so everyone else is figuring out how to apologize and not only apologize, but action behind the apology, put action into place to do corrective behavior we're seeing just the opposite in the United States. Yeah, and we're seeing it as something to be even more divided about. We're Absolutely. seeing it as a loss. So I know that you are like encyclopedic when it comes to your understanding of this topic and the kind of academic and intellectual approach that you have. But I actually feel like, and because I know you, I feel like your personal story is a place that has so much potential for like really taking this to a whole different level as far as the conversation, but also people's understanding of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I would love to just maybe start off with you personally sharing a little bit more about your story. You mentioned that you, you know, grew up in Chicago, you grew up in the 80s, you saw, you know, what you saw during those times. But I would love for you to tell a little bit more about your personal story and how it is that race and identity associated with, you know, your own racial identity journey has helped you um, understand your place in the world and sometimes the, the 
pain associated with that? Sure. So my fondest memory and my lens around race comes from my grandparents. My grandparents were uh, the predominant figures in my life as a child. And so both uh, left the South and they met in Chicago, um, working together in a, in a restaurant. My grandfather was a busboy and my grandmother was the waitress. And so, so many of my memories around race and to the point that I was actually paralyzed from some of the stories from my grandfather when he talked about leaving the South, talked about lynchings and he gave me all the, the cultural cues I needed around how to act, how to interact, what to do, what not to do. When I was younger, sit on the, sit in the very front of the bus to be make sure that you're protected. Don't sit in the back. Watch who gets on. Watch the neighborhoods that you go in. If you go past this street, you know, make sure you get there and get out really fast. And so, being able to um, migrate in and out of relationships yeah. and, and um, neighborhoods in Chicago. Um, my dentist, orthodontist as a child, was in a predominantly white community um, and um, one that was known to be very racist. And so my appointment time, my mother made sure that my appointment was at a certain time so I can get in and out when kids weren't out of school. So they, there were some issues about me being chased or being bothered. Um, but then um, one of the most um, poignant moments in my history is my family moved to um, the further southwest side of the city. And we were the third black family to integrate the neighborhood. And I remember as if it was yesterday, 1977, 78, there was a KKK rally a block and a half from my house. And literally, they had a full parade marching, the, the, the wardrobe, the regalia, the horses. And to not understand as a child why I was being hated just because I was black is probably uh, one of the things that has probably pushed me further to always feel like I have to prove to the world that I'm a good black guy. Yeah. And that's a part of the, the, the cultural lens that we have to wear sometimes to see life through to prove to people that, you know, we're not what you think we are. Yeah. I, I, I am a good guy. Yeah. I, I just, yeah, I'm, I have chills just thinking about, I've known you for a long time. I have never heard that KKK story. <laughs> I have never heard that KKK story. Um, it's so it's so amazing that you know there are so many people who, you know, walk around the world and just they may assume that they have to prove that they're a good person, mm -hmm. but they don't have to assume that they have to prove that they're a good person, um, in spite of Absolutely. their entire <laughs> race, right. right? And all of the negative stigma that's associated mm -hmm. with that, even if it's not true, right? right? We still are constantly trying to feel like we have to prove ourselves outside of what these stereotypical, Absolutely. incredibly unflattering, right, trauma-filled stereotypes mm -hmm. are, are um, sharing with the world and that people are ingesting about us. And on the opposite side of that, we have the folks in dominant culture who want to validate, oh, you're the good guy, oh, you're different, or you're, oh, you're so smart, you're so intellectual. And it's like, is that rare? <laughs> is that unheard of? There's only a couple of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, you know, people, I... I I know people are trying, but no, it, in the absence of being willing and able to have conversations around complicated topics like critical race theory, we're always going to be in a place of having these well-meaning folks mm. who are doing things that are either tone deaf and or blatantly, you know, missing the mark. Because they're not going deep enough. Because they're like, mm, I care, but I don't, I'm too scared to actually get into the thickness right. of all of that complexity. And then I have to deal with, how does that make me feel? How do I look? Am I going to be exposed for not getting it just right? Am I going to be labeled or embarrassed or whatever? And it's like, at some point, we're just going to have to you know, be more courageous collectively. Absolutely. And we're going to need folks who may be incredibly uncomfortable with this topic to just mm -hmm. figure out how to navigate it. Absolutely. The thing for me about critical race theory is it's just, it's almost too simple. I mean, I understand mm -hmm. academically, mm -hmm. it's about understanding the correlation between, you know, identities and law. I understand. And, and there's a whole lot of other bodies of literature around it. It's so yes. complex. There's so much. I get that part. And so academic and intellectual it is. But it's also ridiculously simple in another way. Mm -hmm. Like to me, critical race theory is history. Right. It's not black history. It's just freaking history. history. Yeah. <laughs> it's just history. Right. It's like, how do we tell the truth about history Absolutely. and understand that wherever there is a history there's always a person who tells it. There's always Absolutely. a point of view from which history is told. 
And over time, we have to realize that that point of view might have been biased. Absolutely. You know, the way I'm going to tell you about my kid, mm -hmm. right, and how perfect and beautiful and pleasant and funny <laughs> and smart and, and blah, 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 blah he is, is different than a lot of his teachers would Absolutely. tell that story, right? And <laughs> right. sometimes you just have to think yep. about from what vantage point has this story been told? And also, who are the other people who are ingesting right. this story as it's being told through that biased vantage point in a way that is having a serious societal impact? Right. Right on not just how people like you and me are perceived mm -hmm. and our children, mm -hmm. but also on how people who don't look like you and me mm -hmm. are perceiving themselves as juxtaposed against us. Absolutely. And then we have to navigate all of that. Absolutely. Right. And so at some point, if we don't jump into understanding this, this actual history, we're just going to continue manifesting the kind of oppression that we're trying to work ourselves out of right now. Right. One of the things I think academically that people miss about critical race theory is that critical race theory and the intersectionality of law and race really focused on what liberal white Americans thought they were being progressive and the laws that they created. And critical race theory says, even in your liberalism, you were excluding and being oppressive. And so I think some of the uncomfortableness around it is we thought we were being, you know, the good folk. Yeah, we yeah. thought we were being perfect. But even in that place of in that space of trying to be the liberal, the perfect, the mindful person, privilege and oppression still shows up. And I think that's where folks are uncomfortable because folks who consider themselves to be the good white guys or the good white folk see don't align with folks who are opposite, who we see wearing the, the Clan outfits who we see right. anti everything. Right. They can't visually align themselves with that vision, but their actions still protect their privilege, for either their individual privilege or institutional privilege, whichever one that they're protecting, their actions still created the exact same oppressive behavior. Well, and that's where things like anti racism and anti oppression come mm -hmm. in, right? Because no, you don't have to be. You know, uh, you know, egregiously racist. So, you right. know, literally riding around on a horse, wearing a hood right. as a card-carrying member of the KKK. Correct. That's one level of racism that's ridiculously obvious. Correct. But there's a whole lot of other ways in which racism and oppression in many forms shows up, and that all of us has the ability, wherever our privileges are, mm -hmm. right, to actually do something about. But we have to. We can't just say. I don't want oppression to exist. We actually have to go the extra effort to be anti-racist or anti-oppressive, yep. which means that I have to be willing to not just look at myself or care, but I have to be willing to potentially shift mm -hmm. some of the areas of privilege Absolutely. that I've had, that I've enjoyed, mm -hmm. that I don't want to lose, right. but that I also intellectually tell myself and others I'm willing for other people to have. Right. If there's only so much to go around, let's pretend there's only so much to go around, right? There's only so much to go around. At some point, my privilege has to be something that I'm willing to distribute if I truly, truly believe in this. And right. that's the next step. But unless we get to a place where we can even like, get everybody to a place where they're willing to say, I'm engaging in these difficult conversations, and I can see myself not on the, on the horse, but still not at anti-oppression, mm -hmm. anti-racism, mm -hmm. If I can't, if I if I can't get past, you know, I, I'm either one or the other, right? That then we have to be, be willing to have a space for a discussion and understanding, and that's where I think the the conversation about critical race theory could be so incredibly helpful. Yeah, and I think the other part of that is we talk about and deal with this issue of comfort is the some of the uncomfortableness is either the theory the, the work around anti-racism says that either you're anti-racist or you're racist, and how do you deal with that? And so folks not understanding how to be an anti-racist and understanding overt and covert racism and how they play out in everyday life is a struggle. And so some of the uncomfortableness is that if, if I'm not actively being an anti-racist, then I have to rectify right. that I have racist actions and behaviors that are part of the problem. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that that's the place. And I think it feels, it's such a heavy word. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if everyone could just kind of be like, yes, get it. I have a lot of racist stuff that has been poured into me and that I have been practicing. It doesn't, it doesn't capture all of my essence. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that I am forever 
incapable right. of growing or becoming. Mm-hmm. And also, even beyond the scope of racism, all of our other identities, going back to intersectionality, I, like for me, I have a ton of areas of privilege. Absolutely. Right? I'm not only black. I'm not only a woman. I'm not only a member of non-dominant, marginalized, undercapitalized communities. Right. I'm also... In living in and experiencing on a day-to-day basis a lot of other areas of privilege. And so for me, it's, it's also it, that this isn't my identity in totality, mm-hmm. but right. it's an opportunity for make a, to make more than just a cognitive choice, Absolutely. but to actually a behavior-based and a resource-based choice going Absolutely. forward. One of the things that we share, I share with colleagues at Harvard about this work is that there's two things. Um, I often remind them, start off with a story and say, you know, one of my greatest failures in life is realizing and figuring out that I don't walk on water. I've tried (laughs) it several times. I don't. And what that means to me is that this is all about us doing the work. You have to do the personal work. Not conceptually, I'm going to work from nine to five. I'm working on this job. I'm going to take two DEI kind of courses. I'm going to go to an anti-bias course. I'm going to just tune into a podcast. You have to do lifelong, deep dive, introspective work. And doing that, you're going to make mistakes because you're going to you're going to bump up against everything that you have been taught and everything you think about life, about race, about culture. You're going to bump your head. You're going to stub your toe. Give yourself grace. If if it happens in the workplace, apologize and learn, but don't stop. Don't get defensive, but really listen, learn, and take a deeper dive into why this is happening or why this behavior is being exhibited. We have to extend grace to ourselves first. Okay. Do we have to extend grace to others? So this is the question that comes to me all the time, right? Because I heard you say, if, if I mess up, I should apologize. But a lot of times people say to me, look, I don't want to do the heavy lifting anymore. Just because I'm black or brown or a woman or... Or, or a member of the LGBTQA mm-hmm. community doesn't mean that I am responsible for your education. Absolutely. Right? And so the other question I have is like, who's, whose job is this? Like, as a, as, like for me, I, I spend my life educating and trying to create space for people to learn. And sometimes people are like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. These folks should be doing that on their own. Right? These folks, yeah. they're, they're grown. They should be doing this on their own. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't really want a whole lot of folks who don't have a whole lot of clue about where to get started or right. even their yeah. own privileges, at just walking around with all these blind spots trying to figure it out right. on my behalf. They might be well-intentioned, but I feel like together we might actually come up with something right. that's more robust and that's more comprehensive and that's actually going to work better. Where is where your thinking on this yeah. whose work this is? I, I think if, if, if we anticipated that folks would have figured this out, we would be in a whole different place <laughs> in society. <laughs> we would not be dealing with these things that we're dealing with now if folks could just figure it out. So I think, no, I don't think everybody's calling in life is to be that educator, yeah. that person that helps um, navigate the journey with people. But there's enough of us in the world that are authentically showing up to do this work because we care and we love it. And so being able to have conversations with people and and understand calling in and calling out culture, all those things that really impact how people either defend or they hide or they shell away, how they engage, how they uh, apologize, how they connect, uh, it takes a skill. It takes takes a a strong-willed person to do it and someone who knows that sometimes emotionally I need to go fill my cup. Because you're continuously emotionally pouring out. How do you find ways to fill your cup? And so I just had a conversation with some uh, library science students at the University of Missouri. Um, Dr. Jason Austin invited me to his class. And that was was one of the questions I asked. How do you keep going? And I say, some days are really hard. And some days I just go home and close my door and don't want to talk to anybody in the world. I, but I know who to call. I know what to do. I know <laughs> I know when I need to refill my cup what those activities are. And I don't wait till the cup is depleted to deploy the, the activities needed. I can sense it. I can feel it. But being able to know that, you know, I'm called to help change the world helps me stay connected and engaged. You know, it's so interesting the way you describe that. Because I, you know, you and I have had these conversations a million times. And there's plenty of times when I'm sitting there kind of on the floor with tears in my eyes and calling you. Just to, like, I just have to tell somebody. And I know I don't even have to do a whole lot of explanation. But the through threads between what you're describing and even other 
journeys that I'm on or have been on over the course of my life, like meditation and yoga and some mm -hmm. of the more spiritual quests that have been part of my life's, you know, um, my life's path has very similar, if not exactly aligned mm -hmm. philosophy, right? Like the, the, you have to come from a, a place of a filled up cup and then the overflow, yes. the spillover is what you give, yes. right? But you can't be depleted. And I feel like that's part of the problem with the world that we're living in now is we have all of these incredibly depleted people mm -hmm. who are coming from, you know, not just marginalization, but they, you know, they're, they're tired. Absolutely. They've been, they've been unseen, mm -hmm. you know, under, under recognized, underutilized, under rewarded, mm -hmm. othered for so long that they have, they start to be in this like toxic place on whatever side of the right. ideological aisle you're on right. and then are coming together to try to figure out like who's right, right. but nobody is actually coming with the, with the actual resources needed mm -hmm. to help us create um, a successful and effective path forward, right? And so I feel like that's the other ingredient here. It's not just understanding and doing the hard work because mm -hmm. nobody wants to do hard work. You're describing this as hard work over the course of a life. And it's like, well, how do you sell that to somebody, right? Like how, like what's, the, what's the sell? Yeah. But at the same time, I do feel like if people are seeing this as a multifaceted experience that's part of the whole journey of life and this becoming and, 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 and self-betterment, you see it as necessary, right. right? To kind of heal the trauma and connect with the compassion. Mm -hmm. They all have to happen in a coordinated way. Absolutely. So here's an analogy I'll use. And by no means am I a relationship or expert or um, therapist or anything. You fall in love. You meet somebody, you fall in love. The things you fall in love with are sometimes externally observable. Something that somebody walked past you, somebody that talked to you the right way or said the right things. You fall in love, you're in a relationship, you're ebbing and flowing and dating. And then you, some folks wind up getting married. All statistics say the, the roughest years of a marriage are the first five years because you now have commingled your life, commingled your thinking, commingled your finances, and you're learning at a whole different pace around what that is like. But you work at it. The successful marriages out there, the 30, the 40 years, the 20-year marriages have been because people have worked at it. And then, oh my goodness, it changes once you start introducing children into it. So you got to work on that new relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything about a relationship and a marriage is about work. The work around being an anti-racist and interrogating yeah, your beliefs yeah. is no different than how you manage and deal with the, the, the changes when two become one, as yeah. we talk biblically. Yeah, I love that. Well, and it's because it, it, the other thing that's so powerful about it is that the idea of like going from, you know, this stage of relationship to this stage of relationship and that stage of relationship, even though there's a lot of work, it's still very aspirational. Absolutely. It's still very desirable. It's still part of the whole package of being fully human, Absolutely. right? And fully exploring the, the breadth and depth of our humanity. And so to put it all kind of in the same bucket of, of course, we do this in all aspects of Absolutely. our life. Why wouldn't we do this around history, Absolutely. around um, reconciling the, the, and, and making congruent the things that are in our hearts and the things that are in our minds intellectually mm -hmm. and the changing environment that we live in? Yes. I love it. I think at this point, we need to take a quick break. Awesome. So let's, let's cut away for just a quick break to talk about um, our, from our, hear a word from our sponsors, and then we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Culture Road, a live and on-demand digital learning solution powered by Dieta Jones and Associates. Culture Road is an easy-to-use subscription, delivering fresh content monthly and access to experts to help professionals at all levels thrive in the contemporary workplace. Stay up to date with best practices on diversity, equity, and inclusion and acquire the necessary skills and tools to effectively lead, manage, and influence others. Get connected with our community of practice to further your professional development at cultureroad.com. Okay. All right, Dr. Offord. So before the break, we were talking about all sorts of things, but one of the things that you did was start sharing some stories about when you were young um, and you know, seeing a KKK full-on march and rally. And um, I would love to, to just pick up right there and just ask you, what do you think for you 
you know, over the course of your entire life, how would you describe the impact that the way that your racial identity has been either taught to you and or perceived by others, how, what has the impact been on you, on your life, on your choices, on your career, on your relationships? What has that been like? Great question. And here's why. When you turn 50 or get a little bit over 50 like I am. I would not know anything. <laughs> <laughs> you, you really start to, again, think about life and think about experiences. And so, uh, as, a, as again, as a young black man, my grandfather tried to his best to prepare me for the world and understanding what the world was like for black men. And his intentions to help protect and guard me, it also created a shell. And so... The, the concept of not being too um, um, big when you walk in a room, to fall in the shadows, to, to just make sure that you're not outshining other people. All of that over my life has had a whole effect. And it took me until I got to my 50s to realize that me trying not to feel intimidating to people is not about me. It's about other people. Mm. And how do I not fall into the shadows? How do I not, you know... Um, dumb down myself, my intellect, or even coddle people to make them feel comfortable in the fear that they're going to dislike me because I'm the angry black man or I'm the aggressive black man in the room. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm a short guy, so the threat of, of height and all that doesn't bother people. But sometimes, you know, um, I think about if I hadn't heard those stories, yeah. how about would I have not dealt with the imposter syndrome or even in any of that ever became a part of my psyche in my world? I think about the cross burning in high school because folks was upset um, that the Chicago High School for Agricultural Sciences, they thought it was going to be predominantly white students that turned out to be predominantly black in a predominantly white neighborhood in the Mount Greenwood area of Chicago. Um, they did not want us there. We had cross burnings. They had to escort our the city bus to a certain line, uh, street to get us uh, home safely. And this is 1985, 1986. This wow. is not 50 years ago. So all of that, again, has played into who I am. And so even though, again, like I said, my grandparents had the best of intentions to try to protect me from what they saw as the world around the lynching, um, the physical abuse, the treatment, it created something in me that made me want to f make sure white people were comfortable around me. Yeah. And at some point, psychologically, that starts to, to, to just fester because you can't be your authentic self and make other people feel comfortable about you at the same time. Yeah. It's interesting because the word comfort, you know, came up again even before the break very little ha has been invested in you feeling comfortable in your own skin. Absolutely. You know, and so it, it's, it's like 50 years later, you're actually thinking about, wait a minute, am I comfortable? Right. You know, and how, and how is it that I need to make adjustments? And now at this point, you're making adjustments that aren't just behavioral. They're like psychological Absolutely. and emotional and, Absolutely. you know, um, adjustments. And also there's a lot of, choices that you've made along the way that may have been differently informed, right? Yeah. If you were if you were coming from a different place. Yeah. This whole issue of comfort and and you mentioned earlier about people saying, this ain't my this is not my work. We shouldn't be doing this. As people of color, BIPOC folks, black indigenous people of color and women also have had to navigate the world through the lens of making sure dominant culture is comfortable. Right. And so how we deal with that now and understand that no matter what level of comfort we bring, oppression and privilege always shows up. And people are tired. And that's where the exhaustion comes from because I'm not authentically being me to try to make you feel comfortable. And you are continuously discrediting everything about me and my people or oppressing me and my people, or killing me and my people then why, why am I sacrificing my authentic self yeah. for someone who doesn't give a damn about me? So how do you, 50 years wisdom, I'm like this, tell <laughs> me, how do you actually do something differently? Like, how do you make a, an adjustment to who you are and how you show up authentically in the world after 50 years of being in a shell? What do you do? Yeah, so one of my fondest memories, and I think it clicked for me, uh, I'll never forget, I was doing my, doing my interview for Harvard, for the position at Harvard, and I was um, grossly intimidated. It's Harvard. 
It's like, why, why would Harvard pick me? Again, some of that imposter syndrome, which also goes to self-confidence, right. all of that comes as a part of making other folks feel comfortable around you and shedding yourself. And um, I oftentimes will over-intellectualize responses. And so I was preparing my presentation. And usually, you know, you hear, don't put a lot of words on the slides. People don't want you to read to them. And so I leaned into discomfort, my own discomfort, and said, I'm just going to do a presentation from my authentic self. And I opened up the presentation. It says, this is the lens that I'm coming to you from. My name is Jerome. I'm from Chicago. Poor kid growing up on the south side of Chicago. Extended family. Um, I'm a black male, educated, identifying same gender loving, gay male. Uh, grandparents. My grandmother had a sixth grade education. My grandfather was illiterate. My mother was a high school dropout. My father graduated from high school, but was absent in my life. All of this is me. This is the intersection of Jerome. That's what I'm bringing to the table at Harvard. And that moment, after that presentation, when I got done, I literally sat and cried because for the first time, I felt like I was authentically me in front of 400 people who I could not see because we were on Zoom. Mm. And it felt like I had took the weights off my shoulder. I love it. But you yeah, have to that. take the risk to, to do it. Yeah. And that's it. Like, especially, and it, it's so hard because you have so many, like, ideas in your head about the box that they're expecting you to show mm -hmm. up and fill exactly. And so you, it's almost like contortionism, right? You're, like, almost mm -hmm. trying to figure out, like, how do I fit myself into this small box that I've never actually inhabited right. that wasn't designed for me or people like mm -hmm. me, right? And instead, you went exactly the opposite. And clearly, they loved it. Did. <laughs> Did. And, and it's work. Again, so it really, it's really about being able to, to, to own you yeah. and say, if I'm not a good fit, I get it. So one of the things I share with my colleagues who I love, um, contrary to popular belief, Harvard is not you know, the place where people have egos and nobody, you know, everybody's listing off all their degrees. I found folks to be very humble, um, very caring, and very engaged. Um, and I was very clear as a part of my authentic self, um, as being a diversity officer before, you do get exhausted, you get tired, because one of the things that I shared is that we oftentimes want to talk about diversity from a theoretical place. Yeah. This is human work. Yeah, yeah. This is self-behavioral change, and you have to meet people in that space. You can't go at it from a theory. Yes, the theories play a key role in education, understanding change and all that. But if you really want to change people, it has to be human to human. Right. And so I shared with Harvard and they committed. I said, I'm not coming here if Jerome is going to be doing this work alone. There has to be co-conspirators doing this work with me from the senior leaders throughout the organization. Yes. And they have been committed. Um, you know, I'm sure this is hard work for everybody. But the beautiful piece is the team and the, 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 the staff has been overwhelmingly welcoming. Now, you do have folks who said, you know, well, you've been here 90 days, so what are you going to do yeah, now? Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't think I can change Harvard's 350-year history in 90 days. I can't, you know, break down the barriers of systemic racism in 90 days or even a year. Um, it took Harvard all these years or any organization, replace Harvard with any organization. All the policies and practices put in place to build what we have is going to take just as much time, if not more, to, to dismantle it and right. to rethink it and to reprocess it. Right. So one of the things I think we fail in, in our EDI mm -hmm. work is sometimes we expect that one hero yeah. to come in and fix it immediately when we have not interrogated what it means to have an equitable environment, what it means that we're going to look at intentionally to um, reviewing policies and practices and procedures around um, income, around salaries, yeah. around titles, around units and organizations. And so it takes time and it takes commitment. Yeah, I love that. I, I totally agree with you. And I talk about this all the time. Like this, this world that we're living in now, we have, we have a totally new model that has to come into existence. Absolutely. And it needs to be some that is heavily resourced it has to be sustainably built, so it has to be built so that it is intended mm -hmm. to be poured into consistently, just like the relationship you were describing a little while ago. And also, it has to be wholly different. So all of this siloizing it where one person comes in and poof, we, have officially, yep. we, we officially have something in place, or where we have a task force or a small group of people or 
HR centric or HR driven only, it's just not going to work anymore. What we need to have is exactly like you're describing, something that is much more systemic and where people in every single role in the organization understand their work associated with forwarding an equity, diversity, and inclusion agenda yes. that also has anti-racism and anti-oppression yes. squarely involved in it, right? Yes. And they understand. And just and for, for you, someone who's relatively new in that role, it's just helping everybody get on the same page. Like, your title has the word anti-racism in it. Mm -hmm. That's a huge commitment that Harvard just made. I remember talking to uh, the VP beforehand and saying, this is a commitment but let me just tell you, Harvard Harvard has been known to jump up, yeah. right? Like, if you're going to do it, do it. Yep. But, but you know, all of this, I'm going to do it around the edges or do it by stealth or kind of do it and see who comes next. That's not how Harvard rolls. Absolutely. If you're going to do it, do, do it, it. Yep. And, and, and do it well, as not well in a performative way, well in a, here's where our values are. Yep. We're going to set our own bar and our bar is going to be very high and then we are gonna work our tails off to clear it. And, and that's the thing that I feel so excited about, that mm -hmm. they were willing to at least start with a ridiculously clear title and then go from there, right? And that, that even just the title alone, your title, says so much about that commitment. Because there's a lot of organizations that have equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging, you know, accessibility, Right. But but to say anti-racism and then mm -hmm. actually to put a position and an entire set mm -hmm. of resources around it, that that's a, an incredibly strong starting point. Absolutely. And I, I have to say the university is very committed. Uh, um, the VP is very committed, not just in resources, but just in also engaging. Yep. And so it's key. There was, you know, um, some scuttlebutt in the profession when the title came out. People like, how is one person going to do anti-racism? And, you know, there's things that we're working on internally to, to support the program. But Harvard, one of the values is that we have for the library specifically is being a world-class anti-racist library. Yeah. And so what folks automatically think of is defining what that value means to them versus what it means to Harvard and to Harvard Library. And what it means to us at Harvard Library is that we're going to interrogate our collection. How do we look at building an anti-racist library? What voices are we not buying or collecting or highlighting? Where are dissenting voices being published that we may not understand or know that exists? And what language are they in? How do we really talk about decolonizing the collections to the point of not cancel culture, but being inclusive of all voices? So right. it really talks about anti-racism and being a world-class anti-racist library. It's not just about people. It's about the work that we do, how we right, do right. it, how we think, how we implement, how we ideate, how we innovate, all those parts are very important to an anti-racist agenda. I love it. And I love the example because that's what people need is to connect the dots. Like if we're, if we're going to say that we um, are anti-racist, we need to understand what that looks like. And again, outside of just the kind of obvious structures like HR, right? It's not just mm -hmm. about adding more, you know, ways, to, not just adding a place to for pronouns or not right. just adding more you know, non-binary inclusive language mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. gender identification, right? It's, it's really about also thinking about moving into the, the, the function of the organization, right? right? The business of the organization. Right. And in the library, collections and, and acce making accessible research and scholarly works space. is the business. Yeah, absolutely. Space, visual culture, art, signage, all those things are things that play a role in, in anti-racism and how we see and think and provide services to, to those who are our users. I, I can only imagine, you know, walking around the campus or the libraries, any of the libraries at Harvard with an anti-racist lens and thinking, okay, is this, is this a place that is screaming anti-racism to me? Like looking around at all those, you know, portraits yeah. and none of them look like me, right? <laughs> right? And, 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 and wondering, like, how do we get from a place of kind of being so proud of this ridiculously prestigious yes. and exclusive yes. right yes. community that yes. we've created to one that allows us to continue to hold on to the thing that makes us us mm -hmm. as well as breathe life into a, a history that is yet untold and a future that Absolutely. we are discovering. Well, and one of the things we found out, uh, Dean Claudine Gay, who's the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, 
um, tremendous leader who also um, created a task force for the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, which is um, one of Harvard's oldest colleges. Yeah. Um, and one of the study participants shared with us in their process is, you know, even though I am a white male, sometimes seeing all these pictures of older white men on the wall is intimidating, even for me. Yeah. And what does that say psychologically to me if I feel like I'm not measuring up to what all these photos of these great people yeah. around the wall, psychologically, what does that do? Yeah. And so how are we going to interrogate this work together is really fascinating because, you know, this generation's different. All of the generations change. So the Gen Xers are now in leadership roles. They're in positions of power and authority. But Gen Z and all the other generations are seeing things from a total different lens. Yeah. And how do we, I'm not saying we need to blow up buildings and rebuild and restart, but there's ways that we really can work to make the spaces more inclusive, make the visual art more inclusive, make the collection more inclusive. And that's what we're focusing on. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier something I wanted to tap in before we move off about the great records resignation. You yeah. talked about it in the founder's address. One of the things I think people are missing about the great resignation is our, what I, I'm, it's been happening, but I'm putting voice to it. The next social justice movement and the next part of the great resignation are people leaving organizations who put out all these great statements about Black Lives Matter, yeah, supporting yeah, yeah. the movement, and that's all they've done. And they made a promise that they were going to commit to do this and commit to do that, and there's been no action. And so people are saying, they're, they're, yeah. they're voicing their opinion and their values by saying, you know what, you lied. Yeah. You lied. Yeah. You capitalized on a moment which is what our, our society is accustomed to, capitalization and oppression, the cycles of oppression. And folks like, you're, you're benefiting from my labor as a person of color, and you are, you're also not supporting the movement and the actions that you said. And so people are going to leave organizations based on values. I, I see that happening already in yeah. droves, right? And so between COVID and this kind of racial equity movement that we're in the midst of. And that's the United States, but it's also in other countries, Absolutely. right? And so if, if, if somebody hasn't experienced a sense of urgency yet, and you're a leader of any shape or form in your organization, I feel like this values alignment, I mean, values back in the day, I used to been talking about values for 30 years. Yeah. Nobody cared. Right. I'm like, this is super important. And now all of a sudden it's central. And it's, it's not optional, and people expect it to be behaviorally demonstrable mm -hmm. right this minute. Absolutely. And, and, and if people are in leadership roles and haven't yet gotten their ducks in a row around this, shame on them. Because it's not like nobody's been telling them. Right. Right. And now we're in, we're at, you know, right, right, three years at least. If the last three years wasn't enough time, you should have been doing this before. Right. But the last three years, you haven't gotten your ducks in a row. Just get ready. You know, yeah. we're, we're going through something that is truly a cultural transformation like yeah. I've never seen before. Absolutely. And just writing a check doesn't do it anymore. Nope, not anymore. Doesn't do it. People want to see action. And conversations not only just on websites, but in the yeah, boardroom, yeah. in staff meetings, in the organization. They want the leaders to be able to talk the talk and yep. walk the walk. And not just appoint people and hire yep. people or somebody give me a script. They need to be able to Absolutely. like get it, have the message be right, and also to be able to say, and here's what we've done, and here's what we will continue to do, Absolutely. and here's the associated resourcing. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So one of the things that I want to do with just the last couple of minutes that we have together is just ask you from your vantage point related to this topic of like critical race theory specifically, are there specific things that you think are happening and or should be happening that could help us just make some traction or get past this kind of contentious place that we are around this topic. What are some of your ideas or observations? Yeah. I, I think, uh, and it's probably the librarian in me, is that people really have to interrogate what, what we see in the media. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody needs to go out and buy the book and read all 300 pages of the book and all this other stuff, but really find ways to interrogate media and what we find in the media, the snippets. You yeah. know, everybody knows if you're taking a communication class, it's always about it's not about what you say, it's how fast you say it. <laughs> so people can't splice your, your, your words. But realize that what you're getting is always a hot topic, a snapshot, a picture, a view of what the real issue is. Yeah. And finding ways to paint the picture for yourself yeah. and understand how it impacts your life, how it impacts your children, how it impacts your family. 
the absence of talking about race or oppression or slavery or, or in any of the gender movements or the trans movement, any of those, the absence of it is we're going to repeat it or we're going to have a generation who doesn't know. Right. And that's more damaging than us saying, you know, let's have a conversation about it. Yeah. Now, there's appropriate levels of when have conversations with children and families about social issues, but we can't get away from them. Yeah. They're here. And now with social media, with us always having the TV on 24-7, with all the, the pundits, the commentators, people are just overwhelmed with information. I mean, we could talk about COVID and the facts versus non-facts and the vaxxers and non-vaxxers, but COVID is just a new topic. Yeah. Race is the same way. Gender issues the same way. Salary gap is the same way. All these issues sometimes are brought to us because of ratings. People really want to make sure that their voice is heard the most. So how we interrogate the information that we're receiving is also one of the things that we have to learn as a society. Love it. Okay. As always. I love it. I, I just, I love being with you. I love learning with and from you. It's, it's funny. We are, we are so close and we talk so much <laughs> and I still learn and I learn and I learn and I learn every single time. It's like your, your wisdom is just always such a gift. And I also, I think in addition to like learning more about experiences you've had or knowledge that you've ingested, I also feel like I learn more about my own lenses. Like it helps me bring into sharper focus. It's so nice to be able to have a space. And one of the things that I encourage our viewers to do is to create a space with friends or family or somewhere where you can actually go and, and think about what you think, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it brings it into sharper focus and it, it helps clarify and it helps kind of separate out my own thinking from the noise, which is so invaluable in such a noise-filled environment, right? So I also um, hope that our listeners continue to tune in and that you have an opportunity to continue um, kind of thinking about some of the things that we talked about today and that you walk away from uh, this episode really having more ideas about what critical race theory is, about how it is that you can continue to do your own work related to understanding critical race theory, um, the way that it is played out and is playing out in your everyday lives, but also how your conversation, your approach, your language can fan the flames, or you can help to work to put out the fire and you think about where your stance is. Jerome, I would love for you to leave our guests with some parting words, some parting words of wisdom, whatever it is that you'd Absolutely. like to share with us and also how we can get in touch with you. Awesome. So I'll share uh, the parting words would be from the perspective of my work with uh, Mr. HBCU. Um, this year we had 20 institutions represented, one of the highest numbers we've had. And um, to make sure those young men don't repeat those 20 plus years like I had of feeling uh, needing to fall back or to shy away or dealing with comfort. Uh, one of the most empowering moments we had was um, we having a conversation about what it means to be a black man, what it means to deal with mental health issues, what it means to be a leader. And seeing those young men at ages 19 to 21 struggling because as they go through their phases of identity development, their phases of manhood, what it means to be a man, dealing with culture, subculture of toxic masculinity, all those things, um, is for those of us who've done the interrogated work, reach back yeah, yeah. and help people in the next generation not repeat some of the things that we had to do to find our authentic voices. Give them the skills now to show up in their authentic selves the best way possible. Yeah. That's what I would tell folks to do. So for those of us, I'm not saying we all have arrived and we're all enlightened and suddenly, you know, we all um, on the same plane with Erica Badu. But, you know, <laughs> how do we reach back and take the next generation and protect them, help them, give them the skills they need because they're our future. Yeah, how to pour love into them. Yep. Yep, that's what culture does yep. in the healthiest way. Yep. And how do we get in touch with you? So you can Google Jerome Offert Jr. plus Harvard to find me at Harvard, or you can go to um, www.mrhbcu.org, and you can find us there as well. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. All right, Jerome, thank you so much for everything again. Um, that's it. That's a wrap on Culture Road podcast number three. For more tools to drive 
uh, cultural competency and performance on topics such as maximizing engagement in a hybrid team or motivating employees through values-based work, creating brave spaces, mitigating bias and systems, those topics and a lot, lot more. We invite you to visit cultureroad.com to learn more about our digital learning solution where you get access to fresh monthly content and community in a live and on-demand format. The Culture Road Community of Practice will fuel your ongoing professional development and help you to integrate equity, diversity, and inclusion concepts into your everyday life. So visit www.cultureroad.com for more information. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you, and be well.